So we're in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. Uh, we, are, we started this series last week by talking about how Daniel, for all intents and purposes, in, in every way, looked like a victim. Here's a, here's a young man who raised in a, in a good and affluent family, an aristocratic family, had all the privileges that came with that, and suddenly all that was taken away. Literally everything Daniel valued was gone. His freedom, his relationship to his family, his country. Now, not only does, is he taken to a foreign land, not only does he, is he put in a school where he will be trained for three years to serve a pagan king, but he's even given a new name. His very identity is stolen. He's given the name of a pagan god. So Daniel's lost everything, but instead of being a victim, he chose to be a difference maker. And we talked about how that's our calling. We as Christians, I don't think any of us can compare what's happened in our lives to what Daniel's experienced, but all of us have something to complain about. All of us have some way of saying, I wish things were different in this way. And especially because we live in a, in a time when it's never been uh, less socially acceptable to be a devout follower of Jesus than it is today in our country. And we can moan about that. We can say, well, I wish I would have lived 30, 40, 50 years ago when everybody either went to church or pretended they did. Uh, But instead of doing that, why not take a cue from Daniel and say, here's what the Lord has given me. Here's the the mission field he's placed me in. Here are the gifts he's provided me. Now, what am I going to do with them? How am I going to make a difference in the lives of people around me? So I want to I start, before we even read the scripture, I want to read you the last verse in chapter 1. Daniel 1 verse 21 says these words, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now why does it say that? In fact, we just usually skim over stuff like that, but why is it there? The author of Daniel puts it there for a very specific reason. The king who conquered Judah when Daniel was there, was named Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about him last week, uh, a very ambitious, world-conquering guy, wanted to build the biggest and, and most impressive empire that had ever been assembled, and he did it. What this is telling us, what verse 21 is telling us is Daniel outlived Nebuchadnezzar. Not only that, Cyrus that he mentions here, Cyrus was the empire emperor of the Persians. And that, if you don't know, is, is foretelling us The Persians are going to swoop in and conquer Babylon. So Daniel's going to get a new boss decades down the road. What the the author is telling us, after telling us all the bad things Daniel's been through, is Daniel outlives Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel even outlives Babylon. And in fact, he'll outlive Cyrus. We'll get to that later in the chapter. But let's start with chapter 1, because we see from that verse, Daniel's not just a survivor. He's a difference maker. Verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, this is in the school where the kids, the the young men who've been brought from all over the world, from every part of the Babylonian empire, including Daniel and his three friends, is where they're being trained to serve the emperor of, of Babylon. And it's talking about the food and drink that they're offered by the king. This is basically their first big test. It says, he would not allow himself to be defiled. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, we found out last week that guy's name is Ashpenaz, to defile him, to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or their veggie tales names, Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? So 
He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, ladies, understand fatter in flesh is a good thing in this case. Or anybody who's conscious of their weight, this is not saying they were overweight, it's saying they were healthy. They looked well-fed. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of that time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So their graduation is they're presented before the king. And the king spoke with them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that, they were, that were in his, all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So I have to start by saying this. If you go home today, and the, the message you take from this passage is, well, you should eat vegetables instead of meat, then you miss the point. Because that's not what it says. That's not what this is about. In fact, I, I tend to agree with Jim Gaffigan, the comedian who said that if God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. That's a joke, but it's serious. I also see in the scriptures that God sometimes actually commands people to eat meat. Passover is an example. Slay a lamb, eat the lamb. Romans 14 is a chapter where Paul talks about a, a controversy involving food in the New Testament era as Gentiles were coming in and, and are we allowed to eat the foods that the Gentiles eat? And Paul writes these words in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we don't know why Daniel and his three friends specifically felt they couldn't eat the food that was provided for them. Maybe it was because the food wasn't kosher according to the Jewish rituals or requirements in the law of Moses. Maybe it was because they suspected that the food and wine had been used in pagan sacrifice and therefore to partake of it felt like participating in idol worship. We don't know. That's really not the point. This is not about food. This is about holiness. What do I mean when I say the word holiness? Because if you've grown up in church or you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've heard the word holy many times, but I doubt that most of you actually know what it means. And I'm not saying that to insult you. The, the fact is, we don't in churches explain holiness adequately. When we hear the word holy, we think of a church building. We think of a clergyman. We think of a pious, sour-faced old woman with a tight bun on the back of her head who gets angry at anyone who's having fun, Right? We think someone who's boring. Let's be honest. But holiness simply means to be set apart, to be separated from everybody else, to say, I'm going to live a different kind of life, different from my peers, different from the way I want to live. I'm going to choose to yoke myself entirely to Jesus. So that over the course of my life, I'll become more and more a person who every thought that I allow to take up residence in my head, every word that comes out of my mouth, every action I take, every decision I make is what pleases him, is what represents him well. Am I there yet? No, but I'm on the way. That's my goal is to be completely holy, to be his man, his woman 
from head to toe. And that's what Daniel and his three friends are doing here. This is their first chance to show their peers, their bosses, that although their nation has been conquered, their God is still on the throne. That although they are captives in a, in a different land, they serve a different king. The king they call Yahweh. The God who created them. And, and the, the interesting thing is, it works. Their holiness is so palpable that they change the, the whole environment of their school. They changed the school policy regarding food. A minority group is not supposed to be able to do that. Not only that, they end up at the head of their class. They end up impressing the king more than any other of the, the boys in the school, and they change their world. This is just the beginning. There are even greater tests coming, but this is the first one. Now, we have the same opportunity. We're placed into a situation where if you live a truly holy life, if holiness becomes your chief goal, more than making money, more than being successful, more than being popular, if holiness is your number one goal, you're going to make a difference, but you have to start there. Holiness is the beginning. And let me tell you, there are two big obstacles standing in our way, and I want to share those with you with the time I have left. Obstacle number one is compromise. We have hearts that love compromise. We love to take half measures. If you've ever tried to exercise and you got up with the goal, I'm, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out for 45 minutes. After 15 minutes, isn't it tempting to say, well, 15 is better than none. That couch looks pretty good right now. That's our hearts. If you, if you say to, your, to yourself, I, in order to read through the Bible in a year, I need to read four chapters a day, and tomorrow you get up and you read, and you're like, okay, one is better than none. Sure. That's our hearts. We want to give partial effort, compromise. And I think deep down inside, most of us would admit if we were honest, yes, Lord, I want to be holy, but I don't want to be completely holy. I want to be sort of holy. I want to be partially yours. I want to be mostly good. We want to reserve that last little bit for ourselves. Think about Daniel and his three friends who believed that their first test of holiness was to avoid this rich food that they were offered. Think about the different temptations, the different uh, excuses they had to compromise. There was peer pressure for one. If you're Daniel and these other three guys and you're sitting in this crowded dining hall with everybody eating basically a cruise ship buffet and you've got celery sticks and beets, you're going to feel out of place. And feeling out of place is no fun. Even, even the most nonconformist person in this room hates to be the only person doing something. Not only that, but Daniel and his three friends knew that word would get back to King Nebuchadnezzar that there were, there were four boys from Judah who were refusing to eat the food that he had so generously provided, and that wouldn't make them look good in the eyes of the king, and that could have fatal consequences. That was yet another reason to compromise. And then there's the, the excuse of appetite, because let's just face it, although I love vegetables now, I, I'll eat just about any vegetable you put in front of me, I, I prefer meat. I prefer good down-home, stick-to-your-ribs food. If sin didn't taste good, no one would ever sin. If, if, if there wasn't something pleasurable about, at least briefly pleasurable about sin, then it wouldn't be tempting. Daniel and his three friends had to say, I'm going to take the hard way instead of the easy way. I'm going to say no to myself. I'm going to deny myself. And that was not easy. Now, how about us? You know, I, I hate to say this, but every non-Christian I've ever known, and by non-Christian I mean people who are atheists, agnostics, or for whatever reason say, I'm not interested in Christianity. Everyone I've known has a story 
a story of some Christian who turned them away from the faith. And they may give you intellectual reasons why they're not believers. They may talk about evolution versus creation or why they don't think the Bible could be true in various ways. But deep down inside, when you get down to the root of it, it's because they had a pastor who was cheating on his wife or they, were, they voted for a Christian politician who turned out to be corrupt and got busted or they used to wait tables at a restaurant where the Christian families would come over after church and they would pray over their meals, but they were the worst customers to wait on and they never left good tips. Or they had a Christian neighbor who was a bigot or a Christian classmate who was a bully or a Christian boss who was the worst person in the world to work for or, or a Christian coworker who had anger management issues. And all of those people would say, that's how I knew. Doesn't make a difference. You can go to church all you want. You're just no different than me. And I guarantee you, if I rounded up all those people they're naming, all those, all those Christians who had turned them away from faith, and I told them the story, they'd be shocked, and they'd say, I, I had no idea. I, I thought I was living a good life. I, I, I'm good. I'm, I'm a better person than most. I try my hardest. It's just one or two areas where I'm not perfect. But then again, who is perfect? And that's the excuse we make. Sure, I want to be holy, but not completely holy. I mean, who does that? Who's completely committed to Christ? Can't I have a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of margin, right, for me? And it makes us like the first-class passengers on the Titanic who are, who are just busy playing shuffleboard and dancing waltzes and drinking champagne, knowing that there's leaks in the boat, but thinking, oh, it'll never go down. This thing's unsinkable, and that's how we see ourselves. My sin's not a big deal. After all, there's way more good to me than bad. So why should I worry about these areas over here that I haven't completely yielded to the Holy Spirit? Well, I'll tell you why. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That is a warning. That is a shot across the bow to anybody who has a compromising heart, which includes me and everybody here. It says, if you think there's not a chance you're going to fall, then you're a prime candidate for the devil to take you down. And he's not talking about losing your salvation. Let me just say it. Out front, there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less than he does right now. But let me also acknowledge that every single one of us is capable of committing sins, of stumbling in such a way that we'll destroy our family, we'll wreck our relationship with our friends, we'll damage our church, we'll, we'll obliterate our witness to others, we'll drive people away from Christianity, and 10, 15, 20 years from now, someone will look back at you and say, she's the reason, he's the reason I'm not a believer in Jesus because I saw the way they lived. This is serious business. This is basically the most important reason I'm preaching this sermon today. When we talk about salvation, we talk about being saved from hell. But Jesus died for us not just to save us from everlasting hell, but to save us from the terrible mistakes we would make in this life if we don't follow him. So let me ask you a very ugly question, and that is, in what area of your life are you most likely to stumble? Be honest with yourself. I'm not asking you to stand up and confess it before this group. I'm just asking you to be honest with yourself before God. I'm asking you to say, okay, God, me and you, you know it, but I'm going to say it out loud so you know that I know it. I have a problem with my temper, or I have a problem with forgiveness. I can't, I hold a grudge too long, or Lord, I, you know that I have a problem with lust and the way that I look at people of the opposite sex, or Lord, you know that I have a problem with greed and, and it, what motivates me is, is stuff. Lord, you have, no, I have a problem with envy or whatever the case may be. Confess it before God and just say, Lord, I want you to shore up this area of my life and change me. I want holiness to invade me before I do something I will regret. And if one or two people 
actually pray that prayer today, this could be, this, this could be the most important sermon I've preached in a long, long time. Rescuing some family, some marriage, some individual from destruction. Compromise. Stands in the way of holiness, so watch out for it. Number two is legalism. And this is the sneaky one, because we all know about compromise. We've heard, we've heard sermons about sin and temptation and repentance as long as we've been going to church. But legalism doesn't get talked about a lot in churches today, which is ridiculous because it's all over the Bible. Matthew 23, Acts 15, Romans 10, the whole book of Galatians. Just read those and you'll get a, get a feel for what I'm talking about. But it's all over the New Testament. What is legalism? Legalism is it's when you say, I'm going to follow the rules of the Bible. I'm going to go to church when the doors are open. I'm going to tithe my 10%. I'm going to avoid vices. I'm going to pray. I'm going to memorize scripture. But I'm never going to give the Lord my heart. I'm never going to learn to love my neighbor. You don't make a conscious decision. It's just that you confuse rules for relationship. You're focused on law instead of love. That's legalism. And the insidious thing about it is it looks like holiness. The most legalistic people you know seem holy because you never catch them doing anything bad. But there's no love there. There's no transformation. So... Let's talk real quickly about the difference between holiness and legalism. There are three differences I want to share with you real quickly. Number one, legalism is repellent, but holiness is inviting. In other words, if you know someone who's legalistic, you don't want to be them. You may admire them. You may respect them. You say, wow, I can't believe they're able to avoid all these sins. And yet there's nothing in you that says, I want to grow up to be like that guy. Legalism is repellent, but holiness is inviting. When Jesus was here, he was the holiest person who ever lived. He was absolutely committed 100% to following the dictates of his father. He never sinned once. And yet, amazingly, the sinful people on earth were the most attracted to him. In fact, the, the, the more sinful the person was, the more ostracized they were from the organized church, the organized uh, faith the more attractive they found Jesus' life. And that should be happening to you and me if we're pursuing the path of holiness instead of the path of legalism. Let me just say it this way. If you're a Christian and you can't name at least a handful of other Christians who are actively being encouraged by you, influenced positively by you, and or some non-believers who are becoming less and less resistant to the truth of the gospel just because they know you, if you can't name anybody like that, that's a warning sign. Maybe my life is more about following rules than it is about following Jesus. Second difference. Legalism sees outsiders as enemies. Holiness is compassionate toward them. We live in a very us-against-them kind of world. you watch watched the news the past few days. You've seen that in vivid display. And legalism encourages us versus them thinking. If you're a legalist, you're always at war with something. You're at war with the other side. You're at war with the media. You're at war with another religion. Legalism continually draws the circle smaller and smaller and smaller. It's always about on who's on my team and, and who's on my side. And then you find out that somebody on your team believes different than you about, about one little minute section of Scripture, and you say, okay, you're out now. Let's draw that circle a little smaller. That's legalism. Whereas holiness is compassionate toward anybody who's different. Anybody who doesn't know Jesus yet, anybody who disagrees, 
Think about Daniel. Daniel's boss, Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, comes to him and says, listen, Daniel, you stopped eating the food. I'm worried. I'm not so much worried about you. I'm worried about me because I have to report to the king. If he finds out that four of his trainees are now emaciated skeletons, anorexic young men, he's going to have my head. What am I supposed to do? And if Daniel was like most people, including, sad to say, a lot of Christians, he would have said, what's that to me? I mean, why should I care about you? What have you ever done for me besides snatch me from my homeland and destroy my people and, and take me away from my parents and, and put me in this awful God-forsaken place? Why should I care what happens to you? Go ahead, get killed. It's, it's what you deserve because that's the way we think when we're legalists. All that matters is that I hold on to what I have, that I'm faithful to what I believe. I don't care what happens to you. In fact, it's better if you do die because that just validates me. But Daniel says to Ashpenaz, Listen, just give us 10 days. I know you're worried. I don't want you to die either. Give us 10 days and just give us a chance to show you that our God is real. That's compassion. Are you growing more compassionate toward people who are different? When you watch the news and you see stories of people doing things that you know are against Scripture, or, or you even read stories about people doing things that, uh, to, to specifically mock the things we believe, is your first response anger and rage, or is it, sense of compassion there, but for the grace of God go I. Lord, please speak your truth to them. Help them to see what they're missing. Because that second option, that's the path of holiness. If you feel rage instead of compassion, ask God to change your heart. And number three, legalism breeds self-righteousness. Holiness produces humility. Humility. There's going to be a a whole message later on in this series about uh, a humble heart growing in in us if we're pursuing God. But I, I just need to say, one of the biggest failings of American Christianity today is how much time we waste complaining about unbelievers for acting like unbelievers. We throw our hands up in the air and shake our heads and get red in the face and and just cluck our tongues at, oh, can you believe the things they say, the things they do? And that's exactly the way we would be behaving if, if the Holy Spirit wasn't in us. That's exactly the way some of us did act before Christ came into us, if we were old enough when that happened. See, humility is totally different than that. That's self-righteousness. That's, that's pointing to others and, and feeling validated because you're living a better life. That's, that's saying, look, look how I don't do the things they do. And there's nothing uglier in the world than self-righteousness. And there's nothing that draw, drives people away from the gospel more than self-righteousness. But then there's humility. Humility, contrary to what a lot of people think, is not looking down on yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. But it is thinking of yourself less, if that makes sense. Humility is when you get to the point where you're fine with other people having a spotlight. You're fine with other people being paid attention to. You're fine with other people getting their way. You're you're just fine with everything. As long as God is glorified and, and you're able to serve others, that's what your life is about. And you like yourself. You don't hate yourself. You like who God has made you. You just don't think about yourself that often. You're too busy focusing on other people. Is that something that's growing in you? Are you growing more prideful? more stubborn, more self-centered, more I should get my way than you were before. See, when, when Jesus came into this world, He was God in human flesh. It had never happened before. He came into a world that was full of compromise. 
Human beings had misused sex, this great gift God had given in the very first chapter of the Bible. They'd used it to, to slake their own thirst, and they destroyed their families. They destroyed society. They had craved money and power and used violent means to get it, and they'd sparked unnecessary wars that killed thousands. And then they invented gods in their own image to justify their own compromise. And Jesus came along. And instead of judging them, he reached out to them in compassion and love. Meanwhile, there's a small group of people among Jesus' own race who were not compromisers at all, but they were legalists. They were good at keeping the rules, but they didn't love people. And they sure didn't love Jesus because Jesus was preaching a message of grace towards sinners. And that was their worst nightmare. And, and eventually, they, they concocted a plot to put him to death. So what did Jesus do? You and I would have roasted them alive in the, in the fires of our wrath. Can you imagine if you had that kind of power, how many dead people you'd have around you? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus died for them. He died for the legalists who spat in his face as he hung on the cross. He died for the compromisers whose sin put him there in the first place, you and me. He died to open up a very special door that you can walk through anytime you choose to say, my life is no longer my own. I've got a new life, a new life in Christ who has set me free. And you start on the road to holiness. And I don't know where you are on that road right now. Some of you have not begun that road yet. I want to talk to you as, as soon as the service is over, if you're willing. Some of you can remember the days when you were walking that road and, and life was exciting because you kept, kept seeing yourself change in, in exciting ways. But that's a long time ago. You've kind of been stuck since then. And some of you, you're walking that road as best you can, and you just need encouragement to not give up because sometimes you feel like you're the only one on that road. Just know this. This world, more than anything else, more than anything else, needs to see people who look like Jesus so they know where their hope is found. And you and I can become those people because our God is in the business of making us those people. So let's submit to Him. Let's join Him on that road today.